welcome to the After School Club podcast. Each week, teachers from around the world will discuss the current trends in the world of primary education. Through honest discussions, we will reveal the truth behind teaching. I was sitting in the classroom, trying to look intelligent in case the teacher looked at me. On today's episode, we will be discussing diversity in the classroom. In today's ever-changing world, are we meeting the needs of all of our learners? I won't be able to talk that. <laughs> Honestly, and you don't want my voice as the first one that they hear on the first episode. No, 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 no. Like, I don't have a good voice. You just want my little annoying chirp just to come in. So welcome to the After School Club podcast. We are a group of teachers here. We are remaining anonymous because we're going to be talking honestly and transparently today on this podcast about issues within teaching and learning. So I'm going to pass over to John here and he's going to break down what kind of things we're going to talk about on this podcast and specifically today on our first episode. Excellent. So week one, diversity, big, big topic to start off with. I've broken it down into some key areas to, key areas to talk about. These are children with special educational needs, children who have English as an additional language, the gap between boys and girls and their achievements, and finally, how poverty might affect a child's learning. So kicking it off with children with special educational needs, I'm going to throw a stat at you guys. 10% of the population in the UK currently would identify as having special educational needs, which in your average classroom of 30 children obviously would be three children. I've been brushing up on my maths for that one. So, big question. With these three learners, possibly, in your class, how do you even begin to plan for them as well as the other 27 children? Uh, I think when you first know what class you're having the next academic year, I think it's very important to have handover with the teacher because they've had them for that whole year. So they know and have all of the information you need to get a good idea of where to start. When you say handover, um, in previous schools, I have been given like papers and stuff. And I find it's really hard to find the time to actually go through all these papers and documents. Do you find um, uh, a kind of a, a meeting is more beneficial mm -hmm. where you can actually discuss and talk about that child's particular needs? Um, that would obviously, if we're talking about school issues, we're talking about like paperwork and things. That's a big kind of issue of contention. Maybe just a face-to-face -face meeting really quick would actually help. I think you need that discussion yeah. because, for example, um, in a school I was in back in the UK, I was given sort of handwritten sheet of notes and they were sort of a bit scribbled, but, you know, it was fine for what it was. And on one of them, it was a, a girl in my class and it said, spelling out of this world. I was thinking, brilliant, I'm in here. But what the teacher meant by out of this world was just unbelievably poor. <laughs> so that I think that's where you need that face-to-face uh, -face meeting to actually make it clear what those needs are. Yeah, definitely. What's uh, next on your list? Uh, so obviously something for us in the Middle East um, that we deal with a lot more than you probably would at home is children with English as an additional language. I think when one of these children comes into a UK school, from what I've seen, there's a big panic. And the teachers think, 
what am I going to do? Because you're not really trained to deal with it, I don't think, or I certainly wasn't in my training. It's a justified kind of response because it it is genuinely tough. You know, teaching uh, to the curriculum and teaching the things that you've been teaching for years is completely different to actually teaching English as a language. Um, we all have experience now with many, many children in our class, the majority being um, from a different culture and a different background, and many of them have absolutely zero English. And we're starting from from zero, you know, and we're trying to build them up. And it it's different. It's different. There's, there's a lot of there's a lot of barriers in the way. I think you've also got, as barriers go, you've also got the fact that quite often the parents won't speak English. Mm-hmm. So the conversations with them can be very difficult. And here it's not so bad because obviously we have a lot of Arabic teachers who can translate for you. But back home, if if you've got, say, for example, a Eastern European child that comes into your class, chance of you having a member of staff in your school who speaks one of those languages is fairly slim. I would say, though, my experience of having um, EAL children in my classes in England have been extremely positive because the Senko has been amazing and there has been a speech and language um, teacher in the school as well. So that child, before they've even come to the school, the Senko's got things in place. She's had a meeting with me to say, this is what you need to be doing to support her in her learning. Start off with, in English, doing activities like this and gives examples. Um, and then goes out nearly every day with the speech and language teacher to um, improve their English. And the progress that they make and how quickly they pick up at the English has has been really, really good. That's so, where resources are really important. Mm. You just said about speech and language teacher. I mean, so many schools will not have those resources. That's where it becomes difficult when it's just on this one teacher in a classroom to look after all of their children and try and get through something to a child who doesn't speak English or has very poor English. Having the speech and language teacher is amazing. What happens when you don't have that? Yeah, and also, if you think about the UK, when a child with no English comes into the classroom or into the school, that school culture is basically immersing them in the English language. Mm. Everybody speaks English and they have no... Um, other option than to speak English mm. here in the Middle East and I guess in other places around the world where I've visited schools the, there are children who don't speak English they're in an international school surrounded by many other languages or in in our case um, Arabic and they have no um, accelerated kind of opportunity to, to learn English because Yes, we speak English to them. Yes, some of their friends do. But the majority of teachers and the majority of their friends are speaking Arabic. So it's their go-to language, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. I think and you can't blame them. That's, no. It's what they're... My what they experience know. of teaching in the Middle East is that the children with the best English are generally the children who have a very diverse friendship group. So children who are Filipino and Bangladeshi and all sorts of things. If they're mixed together, they have one common language, which is English. Mm. So they have mm. to speak English. And they are the ones with the best English because they put in that time and effort to learn it and they're always speaking it. And here's where the honest part of the podcast comes in. I've got a child in my class who um, I've had actually for two years now. Um, and I'm not ashamed to say this. He has not um, improved. His English has not improved. I speak to him in English all the time. And I'm sitting with him whenever I can to do extra English sessions with him. But the long and short of it is his friends don't speak to him in English. When he goes home, he has no English at home. So his acquisition is so much 
further behind than everybody else in the class. And uh, it'll become a confidence thing then as well. Yeah, and it's confidence. And but what's happening now is that coming to we're coming to report season, um, and I'm getting the assumption from um, leaders above that I'm not a good teacher because this child hasn't picked up English, um, and despite my efforts, there are barriers that I cannot remove. You know, to to get. Do you have yeah. intervention in place in your school to support the EAL, the what the children that don't have any? No, there's English. a lot of talk about it, but again, there's no s- concrete in, in intervention for them. And like, but even so, even with that intervention in the school, it's again the home life yeah. and the culture of where mm-hmm. they are. It's that immersion. I think that immersion is the key word there. But um, it's a tough one. It really is. My experience of um, being in the Middle East with a um, year six boys class, I feel that my boys know enough English to get by. So they don't actually, I don't think they feel like they need to learn anymore because they can read enough. They can communicate reasonably well to get a point across to me and someone else who does speak only English and they can write. So I don't think they have the want and the need. No, it's the desire, isn't it? Desi- mm. Yeah, I don't think they've got it. And I've overheard some children um, say, you know, so I would say to them, practice your English, you know, let's, let's, let's develop our English speaking skills, wherever, in, you know, in a kid-friendly way, I wouldn't say, let's develop our... But, <laughs> and they, their response is, Mr. I speak English good. Like, and, you know, that's... They, they think they can speak English very well, and that's it for them. They, they can get by, as you said, and they don't want to improve anymore. And again, is it what they're parents are mm. conveying to them uh, you know I mean knows? I agree I th- I do think that um, the children that I've come across that at 8, 9, 10 years old that can speak Arabic and English I think it is amazing they can read it they can write it so what they can do is good but like I said I think they just think that is just that's enough hmm. so you just mentioned about your boys I think that brings us on to our Next kind of subsection of diversity. John, would you like to uh, introduce what our next bit is? Oh, I was going to say, aren't you John? No, I'm John. Um, (laughs) So we're looking at gender. Uh, Unfortunately, I'm a very, very busy man. And the only stats I could find were from the US. But I think they're still relevant and still interesting. Um, So I'm just going to rattle this one off. Girls surpass boys on reading and writing in almost every US school district, regardless of local wealth or racial makeup. In third grade, female students outperform boys by roughly half a grade level. By the end of eighth grade, girls are almost a full grade ahead. Wow. Uh, while that is in the US and not, you know, obviously not, need, none of us teach in the US, I think it's still very relevant. And I would imagine it's not a completely different story everywhere else. No, I think it's, it's yeah, it reflects quite accurately on, on the rest of the world from what I've seen. Um, can I just jump straight into our situation here? Um, regarding diversity with gender and boys and girls, we have a unique situation. I wouldn't say it's unique because there are some boys' schools and girls' schools in the UK that are very successful. And um, parents send their children to all-girls schools by choice. Um, Here, we have segregation between the classes. So we have a boys' and a girls' class. What, What do we think about that? Does that... Help this statistic? Does it? I don't know what, what. No, I think it's a nightmare. I think from what I've seen um, in uh, Arabic schools is that boys 
behaviour isn't particularly brilliant, whereas girls is very good. And that just tells you within a learning environment, obviously, if, if the behaviour is excellent, then learning is going to be better. And vice versa, if it's a poor learning environment as far as behaviour goes, then they're not going to learn as much. And also, I think any teacher will know this, when boys come together, it tends to be that little bit more chaotic when it's just a group of boys rather than a mixed group. Yeah. I would say that one positive and one good thing about having a all-boys class is the ability to engage them in their learning more easily because all of my boys are football mad. Um, I can cater for that within my lessons and make the writing more interesting. They're doing balanced arguments. We can do it about fortnight when they're... Um, choosing the sort of the genres of, of writing and reading, just cater it to them more. Whereas when you've got a mixed class, you want to please the boys, but you also need to please the girls as well. So that can be hard. So I do think that I am actually at an advantage in engaging them in their learning and trying to get them to love or like writing. While that is a positive, and I do agree with you, um, there is something that there's an offshoot of that that doesn't really work though and it's um it's based on so i was reading this article earlier on the guardian um it's worthwhile it's called diversity starts in schools it's um it's a quite an old article from about two years ago um and it talks about the opportunities that are afforded to girls and boys in schools and it talks about like you know when years ago it was um the boys would want to be policemen or train drivers and, and the girls would want to be nurses or whatever but by having a fully boys class, are those boys being exposed to um, different things that the girls would bring to the class in a normal classroom? Whereas, he, you know, here they, they're obviously excluded from, from what the girls are doing. And even, um, it's a bit of a horrible story, but we have a, a combined music class. Um, I think you came to observe one of our... Um, I did, from, yeah. You visited our school. And that came was in. an experience. And um, we tried to put the girls and the boys together. And for most of their education, um, well, a lot of their education, they've been segregated. So putting them together to try and work together in a music class, which was quite interactive and practical, um, it was, for it, lack of a better word, it was disastrous. It went beyond the school disco sort of thing of... You know, I don't want to go near him. I don't want to dance. With yeah. It went beyond that, didn't it? It was, it was, there Screaming was genuine fear. And, and yeah, they were, they were fearful of each other. Like, oh, she's a girl. You know, I can't. And, and it was just, and the, it wasn't just the boys being like, oh, girls. It was the girls as well, wasn't they? They were being, oh, yeah, yeah. and I think, I think we've, I'm, I'm going to be brutally honest here. I think my school has damaged the children by segregating them. They have made their social lives in the future very difficult and the way they are going to access any kind of learning or any kind of opportunities in their life with male and female I, I just think it's good they've it's it's destroyed a kind of a, a link that should have been made in their brain um i don't know what you guys I'd have like to, to say about to that. that in that in my experience and i want to make that clear my experience so i'm not i don't want to make sort of sweeping statements and uh, uh, just generalizations but from the classrooms i've been in girls generally have a um, a better attitude towards their work in presentation and how hard they work and wanting to get it right. And as I said, that is generally. And I think it helps for boys to be exposed to that and to see, oh, she really cares about her work. Why don't I care? Why am I not trying to make that word perfect? Why am I not trying to get my handwriting neat every day? Obviously, there are boys who do write neatly, but I think 
girls, in my experience, are better with that. And I think boys need to be exposed and they need to see that. Yeah, it's it's to be honest, we could we could talk for hours on on justice. And I think being where we are, it's very it's a it's quite a close it's it's a topic close to my heart and um and I wish we could kind of see change. But anyway, we'll move on um because we'll get we'll just keep digging otherwise. Yeah. Um what's the next kind of subsection? So I think this is one that quite often isn't really thought about straight away by a teacher. Where, like you said, when you first get your, your class list, it's not the first thing you look for, but um, it's poverty. In England, obviously, we have free school meals. And I've worked in schools where the free school meal percentage is 43%. I've been in schools that are above 50%. Just for international, can you explain what free school meals means? Yeah, so free school meals um, is basically a government initiative that helps families who are below a certain income. And it obviously, as the name would suggest, it gives the children free hot dinners at school rather than paying the, I don't know, £1.80 or, or whatever it is that, parent, that other parents pay. And is it true, I'm, just, I'm sorry I'm interrupting you, is it true, I've heard this, I'm not sure how true it is, that for some children it's the only hot meal they get, isn't it? Yeah, the I'm, school that sure I've been is, in, yeah. it is. Yeah. And also free school meals, correct me if I'm wrong, is it not now that the whole of Key Stage 1 key stage are entitled one to yeah. a free school meal, wow. and then yeah. Key Stage 2, it's Paid, dependent yeah, on, on parents. Means, means tested. Means tested. But yeah. I do believe just before I left the UK, that was potentially changing, and that was going to be something that was going to be cut. So I don't know, but that's as when I left, yeah, that's how point. it was, which is amazing. Right, so I've got a, a statistic here. It is secondary based but i think obviously we are the start of that education so it can only start with us and then graduate um so 60 percent of individuals who are eligible for free school meals in year 11 were in sustained employment at age 27 compared to 77 percent of their peers therefore free school meals eligible pupils were 23 percent less likely to be in sustained employment age 27 which is a massive massive difference obviously there is a gap there and that's not coincidence how do teachers what do teachers do in that situation then is it is it is it a teacher's responsibility uh, when it comes to family um poverty and opportunities in work like in talking about primary school now is it yeah what, what can we do i think a lot of the time it's really forging strong bonds with those parents because quite often those will be the parents who are a little bit wary of coming into school and speaking to the teachers. How have your school or how have you personally dealt with these issues? Uh, well, a school that I worked in back in the UK had a lot of deprived children and children that were in poverty and we did a lot for them. So if they, for example, if they came into school and they hadn't had their breakfast, then we were in a position to give them a piece of toast, um, forgetting packed lunches and things like that. We could give them... We had the school kitchen on site so we could give them their lunch. Um, and I think it did have a massive impact on their attainment and progress in, in class because then they are ready to learn. They are, they've had their breakfast. They, they feel like they belong. They feel cared for um, and they feel safe in school. And I think that's really important. And there are schools that do laundry for sort of children and parents, isn't there? I've never heard that before. That's really? amazing. Yeah, it was a news, a news report I saw uh, a few months ago that, there are, there, I mean, sure, there's loads of schools, but there was a school who, because the parents basically just were not able to wash their uniform because it was just too expensive for them, um, the, the 
parents were bringing in bags of just uniform. Obviously, you're not going to be washing the towels and things. <laughs> but um, yeah, schools were washing the children's uniform because that gives them a sense of, you know, I want to be here as well. No, no child wants to be sat in a sort of stinky uniform. Yeah. And for the child and for the parents, like yeah. what a relief to know that your child is going to go to school and although maybe parents can't provide what other parents can for their child, they know they're going to go into school and they are going to be looked after and there's going to be someone that they can talk to if they're worried about anything. And it must make that support from a school must make a child feel like take that anxiety away. Yeah. Ultimately allowing them to learn a little bit better. So in an effort to kind of move this um, this conversation forward, um, you've got the question there, are we sufficiently trained? And yeah. I think that's quite powerful because whilst you could be in a school with, um, you know, really good leadership and good systems and a really good culture in place, um, you I've come across teachers, and as you probably have as well, who may be kind of less effective in identifying the, the needs um, of certain learners. And, yeah, definitely. Um, how, how do we answer that question? Like how... How are we sufficiently? I mean, I think trained? just looking right back to the start is sort of an NQT. Do you leave university feeling trained and ready specifically for dealing with diverse needs? Because I don't, no. I don't know that I did. No, it's 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 a it's a long term thing. Life isn't it? Experience. Yeah, yeah, life experience. But I mean, I, we had we had lectures on these sort of things while we were at uni. But I I didn't. I, you do need to be there. You do need to experience those children who do give you a challenge but even then you need the help as you say of your senior leadership team mm. I've been lucky to have a fantastic Senko before who um, really really helped me she knew every child by name knew all their needs and those are the things that make your life a lot easier but just on your own I don't know how many people are trained well enough to take those things on on their own and there are like training courses that you can go on that are how to um support um sen within your classroom um or closing the gap between boys and girls but every child is so different so i think it is down to can i also put another point a a question about your point there how many dreadful training courses have you been on though where you get nothing out of them loads yeah Mm. loads i think i can only honestly say that i have been on one amazing training course and was it on Diverse learning needs? No, no, it wasn't. It was a literacy writing one. That's a really good point there. I think this could be uh, an, another episode where we yeah. where like we talk about CPDs and, and training courses that, that that are available to teachers and and how sometimes they don't actually provide anything and they take a lot of time. They take a lot of time. Mm. Okay, then let's put another question out there. What can we do personally to close the gaps? And I'm thinking about. Our personal situation now. So let, let's take EAL as a main point because that obviously is big for all three of us. What can we do? So at the moment, I would say um, we don't have, and I'm going to, again, be honest here, we, we don't have a, a, a Senko in place at the school at the moment. Um, we do have one that's just arrived, but obviously they're settling into the school, so there's no um, deep kind of, there's no deep knowledge of, of the students yet, um, as you were alluding to in your previous school um right now i think the only thing i can do is is adapt what i'm doing in class to support them and whilst making sure that the children who are good at english are not kind of uh 
getting bored and then using as much as, as my of my using and then using as much of of my free time as possible to um give them a little boost i guess doing break times and things like that i think it's interesting you said there about your senko having just come and you know obviously she's not up to date yet i don't know about your school but in my school there's not a lot of senko can do to be up to date back home every child has a you know, thick folder full of all information, doctor's reports, everything they need and everything you need as a teacher to look at. In my school, I know certainly we don't have anything like that here. We don't have any history on these children. No records? Of, nope. Mm, that, that poses a problem then in terms of how you deal with, with and making sure that the, the children leave school with a good education if you have no records on them and, and you don't know. And, and they can't exactly tell you themselves because... No. They haven't got strong English. And I don't think the understanding um, over here is as good as it is at home. I don't know how well they're sort of picked up from an early age of, you know, oh, this is more than bad behaviour, mm. or this is more than this child being sort of below average. I think, I, I don't know how well it's picked up here. Yeah. What do you think, Jane? What can you do in your classroom? What do you do in your classroom? To support SEN. SEN, EAL, any of these diverse needs? Um, pictures, videos, something that they can engages them as well. I think yeah. it's important. If they're not engaged, then they're just not going to take anything in any, anyway. All so Everything just links together, doesn't it? But um, if something is, especially in English, is quite wordy, then I... What do you do if you give an instruction... Or you you tell you give them a task and then you've just cut me up. Are you really halfway through? I didn't finish my sentence. So if I've got a very wordy piece of writing um, that the children need to be able to access, then I might take out some keywords and have it um, written down in their language as well as English. Um, so using resources like that are really helpful. And I think the taking out those keywords and immersing them in the, that vocabulary as well. So, like, I don't know how many schools do this, but I'm a big fan of a topic-based curriculum whereby, in English, for example, you will immerse the children for a few weeks in one particular topic and they'll be using that vocabulary every single day in every single lesson. You know, it'll be a, a constant theme that they are. And that hopefully will sink in. Um, I think the problem lies where you have one-off lessons, especially, like, um, I know in the US they have kind of grammar lessons and comprehension and it's all kind of disjointed and different things and I don't think that's a, a nice way of kind of immersing them into vocabulary in into new vocabulary and yeah just think about an experience I had today how do you two deal with when you have a complete like, breakdown of communications and you try many different ways of explaining something and it still just doesn't make any sense to them how do you deal with that can you give can you give us the example as a case study um so I was talking today, uh, we were reading our, our story today, and there was a word in there which um, I was fairly sure was an Arab word. And I was trying to ask them, did it mean what I thought it meant? And I was sort of down this rabbit hole of a conversation for genuinely probably four or five real life minutes wow. where they couldn't really understand what I was asking I couldn't really understand what the problem was with their understanding of my question. So what do you do when you know that something you've just said, your children just are not 
they just do not understand what you've just said? Um, I've never really had that situation. My um, class are very good at um, translating. So midway through a conversation with me, they might look to their friend, speak in Arabic, and then he will then say to me in English what he was trying. So he asks his friends for translation. Have you ever had to get a child translate an instruction to the class? Yeah. Um, yes. Do yeah. you feel like you've lost a battle then or given up a bit? Because I've done it plenty of times. Only when it's... That's a really good question, actually. It's a really good thing to talk about. I think I've only done it and I only do it when it is absolutely necessary yeah. and when the instruction is complex and it includes new vocabulary. Most of the instructions are simple um, and they've learned them in terms of, you know, like the standard classroom instructions, you know, do this, write this, do that, blah, 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 try this, talk to your partner. But when there's a specific instruction and I'm maybe speaking to one child, um, because your class, I don't know if, you, if I'm alone in this, but as a teacher, my class-based instructions to everyone are quite straightforward yeah. um, as they generally are. But then when you give your personalized instructions or feedback to certain children, that's where the problem comes. And that's when I have to get, um, you know, Ahmed over, who's very good at English, to help me. And he's a trustworthy, you'd have to make sure he's a trustworthy, you know, um, mm. responsible young man to, to translate. Um, but I think, no, I wouldn't say I've lost the battle. There have been times where I've, I've thought, if I didn't have a really solid English and Arab speaker in my class who could translate, there have been times where I've thought, what would I do if she wasn't here? Because mm. there are times where, when you just... You just have can't to adapt, quite get through to, you have to Just adapt the, the lesson, adapt the instruction, wouldn't you, I guess, to... Then that would obviously limit the learning, I guess. Yeah. Mm. So. so we're um, we're going to wrap up. We've um, we've been talking for a little while. This is our first episode, so we're, we're kind of ranting on and we're just getting used to communicating with each other in this environment. We hope you've enjoyed listening and we would love to hear from you guys. So um, if you go to our Twitter page, we are at the After School one the number one at the after school one you can tweet us you can message us and even more interesting you can go to anchor and you can download the anchor app it's a podcasting app you can sign up um you can listen to loads of different podcasts on there but we are on there and you can message us you can send us voice message or text message and we can include your opinions and your ideas on the show um again it's going to be an ongoing series and i think next week we are going to talk about we're going to go for cpd training courses and everything in between. And the horror stories. Um, oh, I've got plenty. Yeah. Yeah. That'll so, be a good one. Um, and if you have any really great CPD that you want to share, um, a good story or some really bad, ineffective CPD, again, this is where um, we have honest teacher talk and it can be completely anonymous if you wish. So uh, get in touch. We'd love to hear from you. We'd love to hear from you. Thank you very much. And uh, see you next week. See you next Cheerio. week. Cheerio. Bye.